Morning, church. Yeah, that's pretty good. You want to grab your seats, those who are standing? It'd be great. Welcome to West Center Baptist. We're so happy that you're worshiping with us this morning, especially to those who are guests or are new. We're so glad you're here. We want to meet you, so you know, don't run away after the service. We want to get to know you, say hi to you. Um, I have a few announcements before we begin our worship service. We have a baptism coming up, so we try at least twice a year to have a baptism. Just put it on the calendar so that we can invite people who are considering baptism um, to be baptized. So if you're thinking about that or you have trusted in Jesus Christ but have not been baptized, we would encourage you to talk to myself or Pastor Trevor about that. Um, so baptism coming up in November. We have some missions save the dates. So you want to take a look on the back of your bullets in there. Um, there's a game night coming up on October 22nd, and then October 23rd, we'll have a mission Sunday, which will be a lot of fun and really good to focus our minds on missions for a particular Sunday. We won't have Sunday school that day. We'll have kind of a missions fair afterwards, uh, after the service, where you can get to know some of our missionaries and the people we support, ministries we support. Men's event coming up, and this is particularly for the college kids, although all men high school and up are invited. Uh, so I know we're a little bare in the college section today, um, but you can pass the word on and we'll try to hit it again next week. It'll be at my house, the DeBerry house, on Sunday, October 16th. We just want to get our guys together, have some food, fellowship, play some games, and particularly get to know our new college students. So if you uh, bump into them, let them know. Spread the word on that. We hope to have a lot of them there. Women's Bible study we have coming up starting this week, Wednesday at Scooters during Awana time. Um, the ladies, this is one of kind of their new ministries that they're launching where Carly's going to be teaching uh, a study on, I think, how would you say it, body image maybe? Where is she? Yeah, okay. We, we've talked about it. It's going to be great. Uh, some of the subjects that she's covering are really relevant. So I hope, ladies, you, you can make that. Wednesday uh, at Scooters starts it off at 6.15. We also have new members class starting today. So if you're new to the church, if you're considering joining as a member, if you have questions, we'd love to have you at that. We're going to be downstairs in the fellowship hall uh, for Sunday school hour. So I know we pull you out of your Sunday school class, but uh, that's what we need to do. So we hope you can make it. And be four weeks, myself, Pastor Trevor, will be teaching that class and uh, we get into a lot of good stuff, a lot of good conversation. So that starts today. Um, one thing as elders we've talked about and we want to make sure you're aware of, in our Constitution that you all uh, have approved, we have sabbaticals for our lay elders. So those are our non-paid or you know, non-vocational uh, elders. And Joel Malassan, who's one of our elders, is on sabbatical. So over the summer, I think in August about, he started. I was gone, but um, so he's on a one-year sabbatical. So be praying for Joel and Holly that it'll be a time of refreshment for them and rest for them. Uh, Joel has served incredibly faithfully in our church, and uh, we miss him. We miss him at our meetings, but we know this is good. So just want you to be aware Joel is not kind of on duty as an elder. Um, he's not at our meetings, but uh, he's still serving. He's serving in the missions team and otherwise. So if you see him, maybe even just thank him for his service. 
Uh, that would be good. I know that would encourage him. Also, we have church directories on the back information table. So if you're new to the church, that's a great way to start to get to know faces. Um, grab one. Feel free. Uh, if you don't know people's numbers or you may be just having trouble names and faces, grab a directory. We're going to update that every year. So we will be updating it when we turn to 2023. And we have a lot of new folks, which is exciting. Um, but we'll update that. Um, lastly, I want to acknowledge our prayer quilt ministry because they... Did they pass the marker? They passed it. A thousand quilts. This is the kind of emotion we need. We need some amens today out of that area. So let's do this. If you've been involved in the quilting ministry at all over the years, would you please stand? Everybody who's just like been there at all, period. Please stand, and let's thank them for their service. It's a fantastic ministry, and, and if you don't know what it is, basically, okay, you hear about a need in the church or community or beyond. Uh, I took a quilt to the Philippines and handed it to a pastor there. Um, you hear about that, the ladies then make a quilt, they pray over it and for that person, and then deliver it to them however they want to do that. But I've just seen how, it, it, I mean, it's the quilt, but it's more the thought. You know, that someone was thinking about you and praying for you and did this for you when you're going through something hard. I mean, people just break down. It's, it's amazing to watch God work through this ministry, and we are so thankful, so thankful for all that you do, and we want it to continue on and on to get to 2,000. That'd be cool. Yeah. Okay, let's stand and greet each other. Okay, let's take our seats. You know it's time to move on when everyone stops talking and you don't to tell them to. They just do it. Rare. We're going to read together today from Jeremiah chapter 31. And to preface that, When we come to worship, when we come into God's presence, which we are today, our hope is not in how well we did this week. Our hope is not even in how well we worship today. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's in a great and promise-making, keeping God. So we're going to read today one of the sweetest, greatest promises in all of Scripture, a new covenant, not like the old covenant, covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. That's our hope, that God is going to keep this promise for all who trust in him. And that is good news, because he always keeps his promises. So let's read. I'll start. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel 
after those days, praise the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored. Then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Heavenly Father, the heavens can't be measured. The foundations of the earth cannot be fully explored. And so we know by this promise that you will never cast off those who trust in you. Lord, as Peter tells us in his letter, we are a holy nation, a people of your own possession, Jew and Gentile, gathered from the four corners of the earth into one body, one universal body of which we are one local expression, Lord, and our hope and our dependence today is not on ourselves. We confess it is in you and you alone that you are decisive in fulfilling this promise through Jesus Christ, our Lord, writing your law within us, granting us new birth to be born again and so enter the kingdom of heaven. We ask, Lord, today that we would respond. Give us hearts that respond appropriately, fittingly with our whole being to sing and worship. For you are worthy a God who makes such great and precious promises is worthy to be worshipped. For even now, even today, you are keeping them. You are fulfilling this word through the prophet Jeremiah thousands of years ago in this moment, in this church service. We ask, Lord, for a sense of your presence and these spiritual realities. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join us this morning as we sing praise.
this morning. <clears throat> Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our one and only comfort. Heavenly Father, that you are the rock that we can depend on. That no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, that you are there beside us, that you are walking with us, Heavenly Father, and that nothing happens to us that is outside of your will. So, Heavenly Father, I just pray that this morning as we give our offering, as we continue to sing, that we do it with a sense of joy, knowing full well that you have us in your hand. Heavenly Father, we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Still my soul. 
people sing, Heavenly Father, as one. Heavenly Father, I just pray that your word would go out now through the message, that it would touch hearts, that it would change lives. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to behold our God and just revel in just how awesome you are, how faithful you are. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. At this time, the children can be dismissed to the back for Children's Church. morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are glad you are here. We are uh, working our way as a church through the book of Revelation. Um, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up the book of Revelation. If you don't, there should be a Bible in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So if you're looking for it, it'll be towards the back. We are in Revelation chapter 2, so we're just kind of getting started still yet in the book. We're going to be at chapter, or verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. 
And as we are in this first part of the book, we notice that chapters 2 and 3 are uh, unique. They are letters, seven letters to churches around the area. Let's read God's word starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus writes this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word, to sit under the reading of your word, to have time set apart out of our week to study your word, to interact with you, to hear, to listen to your spirit speaking to us through your word. Thank you that we get to hear, that we get to interact with you this morning. Thank you that we get to sing praises to you this morning, that we have the opportunity to sing with other brothers and sisters who love you, that we can lift our voices in praise to you. We thank you for this blessing. Help us not to take it for granted. We pray for those around the world who are facing persecution today, much like Antipas in Pergamum. We pray for those who are afraid, who are facing strong punishment. We're standing up for the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would give them comfort. We pray that they would trust you that as they are being brought before kings and governors on your name's sake, that they would not be afraid, that they would not worry about what they are going to say, but that you would be faithful and you'd give them what to say in the moment. That you'd help them to be strong even unto death. Help their families, we pray, as they suffer and they grieve the loss of their loved ones. Help them to lean into you and to realize that you are worthy of it all. That this life is temporary and passing away, but your kingdom is forever. We pray for them, Lord. Plead for them. Help them, we pray. We pray also, Lord, that as we interact with the text this morning, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would build us up, that as we proclaim you, Lord Jesus, 
that we would hear your warnings to us through this passage, that you would open our hearts to receive your teaching, that we would all be built up with wisdom, that we would grow in maturity in Christ. Lord, help us to take this seriously, our relationship with you. We pray that you would grow to be our greatest treasure. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Pastor Justin mentioned uh, in an earlier sermon, these seven letters are kind of like a report card. Um, and Jesus had sent them with a mess, uh, by messenger to the seven actual churches around Turkey. And the order of these churches that we read would be kind of the order of the, the messenger that would have delivered the letters to them. The first was Ephesus. And we remember that church was doctrinally sound. They had strong theology, but they had grown cold in their love either towards God or their love towards outsiders. We also learned about Smyrna, who was a small and suffering, weak church. It looked very weak and poor, but Jesus praised them. He said, you're rich because you're faithful. And you may be poor according to the world standards, but you are rich in my eyes. The third letter that we're exploring today is to the letter to the church in a city called Pergamum. And today, uh, Pergamum is the modern city of Turkey called Bergama. Bergama. So if you want to go to Turkey, you can go here, check it out, Bergama. Sounds like Pergamum, but it's Bergama. Uh, uh, as I was thinking about this and the idea of a report card, uh, this week many of you parents and some teachers in here uh, had parent-teacher conferences. As a parent, uh, going to a parent-teacher conference, this can be a little bit scary. Um, and as we walk in there, this is my, what I was thinking. I'm like, I hope my kids have not been crazy. <laughs> I'm afraid of what I might hear. Um, but I really do want the teachers to be honest with me. I want them to tell me what, what's going on. What are the struggles? How can we help them? What are they doing well? How can I affirm them? We want what's best for our kids, and we are thankful when the teachers tell us how they're doing. And these letters in Revelation are kind of similar. As we read them, it's helpful for us to remember that Jesus loves his church. He loves us. And he deeply loved these seven ancient churches in Turkey, and he loves us today as well. And the reason that he wrote these letters to these churches was because of his great love for them. He wasn't wanting to make them feel bad or to make them, you know, feel like failures. He wanted to build them up to help them be mature in Christ and himself, to look forward to being with him in heaven. It's good to remember that these aren't letters to harm them. Even though they have challenging words, they're meant to help. So let's look together at chapter 2, verse 12. I encourage you to, to have your Bibles open um, and just... Interact with the text this morning. Verse 12. Look at verse 12. What is the picture as you read this verse that you get of Jesus in your head? And the angel of the church in Pergamum write this. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What is the picture of Jesus that you see? And Revelation gives us a lot of these pictures, and, and we're meant to let our minds and imaginations go. What do we see? What do we see Jesus right here? 
Well, this is not the gentle and lowly Jesus. He's not a little baby in the manger, Jesus. This is the dangerous Jesus. He's standing here. He has a sword in his hand. And he is armed and ready for battle. If you glance your eyes back over verses 12 through 16, why do you think Jesus describes himself like this? Why would he highlight that he has a two-edged sword? <laughs> if you were writing a letter, sincerely, Trevor, the man with the two-edged sword. So, <laughs> hmm, interesting. Could it be that someone or someone or something was threatening his people? There was something that was threatening his people. There was a lion that was prowling around seeking to devour, and he has a sharp two-edged sword in his hand. And if you look at the passage, you'll notice that Satan was attacking the church in Pergamum in two ways. Verse 13, if you look at it, blatant persecution. Renounce Christ or you will die. Worship the emperor or face death. Second way, Satan was attacking was stealth mode, the Trojan horse strategy. If you can't beat him, join him. Get into the church, become friends, lure them away from God. On the one hand, you know, if you're thinking about the picture of Jesus here, if people were attacking you and your life was in danger, this would be a comforting picture. I want that Jesus on my side. I want the Jesus that's huge, muscular, and has a sword in his hand standing behind me as the lion is prowling. On the other hand, though, if you were the one threatening Jesus' people and rebelling against him, the sword-wielding Jesus should be intimidating. It should be frightening. This is the sword of judgment. So what is the situation that the people here in Pergamum were facing? Well, this was a spiritually dangerous and dark place. God's people there had experienced satanic persecution and even death. And thankfully, as we read here, Jesus knows that. He understands their situation. He knows how difficult it is for them in this place. So in verse 13, he gives them encouragement. He says, I know, I know how hard it is. I know your situation. I know you are living, in verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Pergamon was a tough place to live for a Christian. History tells us if you do a word search or a search of Pergamum, it was a center of pagan religion. It was like the capital of emperor worship. There were multiple temples to many false gods. And one of these was Asclepius, uh, the serpent god of healing. If you see a, a doctor's office and you see a, a, a pole with a snake on it, that's from that false god. It was Asclepius, the, the serpent god of healing. He was there. Uh, there was a 40-foot throne-like altar to Zeus on the hillside. And people would see it. And there was a temple specifically dedicated to worshiping Caesar, to the emperor. This city was full of satanic activity. Every corner there was probably idol worship, uh, pagan worship, emperor worship, pagan-faced festivals, 
food being cooked and sacrificed to idols. And to be a good Roman citizen in Pergamum, people would have wanted, expected you to participate. They want you to participate in the festivals, in the banquets, in the sporting events, in the celebrations, the ceremonies. The wealthy and the powerful people would often, like, it would, they would be there, they would really want to become priests and priestess. Like, you'd know that you have arrived in society when you were a priest or a priestess working in the temple, uh, hosting banquets, inviting people over to your house to eat food, sacrifice to idols, to worship these pagan deities. And if you were a Christian, if you didn't participate with the cult worship, you were seen as someone that was kind of a detriment. Like, oh, there's the guy that doesn't play along. There's the guy that's just a downer. Debbie Downer over there, he won't eat our food. He won't come to our parties. He won't play with us. He won't participate in the sporting events. And not only that, but it was seen as being not patriotic. If you weren't worshiping and bowing before the emperor, you weren't a patriot. Like, it was, so it was tons of pressure. To not worship the emperor, not only was it not patriotic, but it was also seen as treason. And you could be put to death if, if you were found out. Say you were very good at something and you rose to the top and they all bowed down to worship and you stood there. Because of the satanic activity at work in the city, Jesus describes Pergamum as where Satan's throne is. So you have the picture of maybe the, the altar to Zeus or whatever there, or the serpent god of healing. And it's like, okay, you can kind of see why they might have, he might have said, this is where Satan's throne is. And later, where Satan dwells. So he knew, Jesus knew where they lived. He knew what they were going through. And he also knew that they had endured this challenging persecution, even to death. Look at the next part of verse 13. Um, yet amid this extreme social pressure to renounce their faith, Jesus affirms them here in this verse. He affirms them for clinging on to him. They held on to Jesus in the midst of the storm that was hitting them like the hurricane. They're like, oh, I'm holding to Jesus even though I'm losing my life. He says, yet you hold fast my name. You hold on to my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So imagine that one of our church members in here, we knew him or her, or him very popular, very, very you know, strong young man, maybe an athlete, Wow, he's excelling, he's doing great. Oh, he just won the sporting event, and he didn't bow before the emperor. And they just killed him. And they killed him. I'm not sure how they killed him, but he wasn't alive anymore. We don't know exactly why he died, but he must have refused to compromise. He's, not, he's like, I'm not going to play along. I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not going to come to your temple worship. I'm not going to bow before the emperor. He didn't compromise his faith in Christ. And can you imagine that if here, that instead of a lot of churches all around our town, on almost every corner, <laughs> we were filled with pagan temples, these giant altars. It would be challenging. And imagine if we were expected as good citizens to bow and worship these false gods. If we go to the parties or whatever at work and they're like, hey, here, have some food. We just sacrificed to Asclepius or Athena or Zeus or whatever. Or imagine that if you didn't bow to the president 
the government would kill you. <laughs> what would you do if one of our church members was killed like this? Would you keep coming to church? What would help you to have courage to persevere? Now, as I was processing this, this is what many of our brothers and sisters around the world are facing today. The strategy of Satan is still dangerous and is still common. I was searching, according to a 2022 report from Open Doors USA, they write this. In Nigeria, a Christian is killed for their faith every two hours. Every two hours. That's nearly 13 Christians a day. 372 Christians a month. It's in Nigeria alone. In many countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Pakistan, Iran, Christians are being persecuted and even killed for their faith in Christ. This is happening today. And for believers facing this type of persecution, Jesus' two-edged sword is a great comfort. In effect, the sword reminds faithful believers and even if they are killed, if their life is taken by the sword, Jesus will save them body and soul, and Jesus will have the final victory. Jesus wins. We know the end of the story in Revelation 19.15. It shows us that the end of all those who persecute Christ's people and all those who are in league with Satan, it says this, Revelation 19.15, it's like a it's like warning don't be against Jesus, he says, from his mouth, Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. And he, Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron. He, Jesus, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Take warning anyone who is opposed and is rebelling against King Jesus because your day is coming. We know the last page of the book. Satan is currently roaming and seeking to deceive and devour the people of God. But this dangerous life is temporary. It is passing away. And any of you who have been to a funeral, any of you who are getting older and like, I see that day coming, will know that our life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's a cloud. It's like the weed that sprouts in the, in the spring and is dead a week later. It's short, and we will all die one day. No matter how we die, as a Christian, though death is the door, death is the door to bring us home. And after death, for all eternity, we will be living with Christ in His kingdom, in paradise. We will be given one day a, a glorified body, a physical body. That's perfect. We'll be living on a physical earth, a new heaven, a new earth. We will all die. We don't know how. Maybe this by the sword. Maybe it's by old age. The church in Pergamum had withstood the satanic attack of this deadly persecution, and they did not abandon Christ in the face of death. And for what they did, Jesus says, well done, well done. You know, we might think that 
It's okay to, you know, give up in that. No, Jesus says persevere. He is pleased. Jesus is pleased with his people when they cling on to him, even unto death. He is worth it. Because there's nothing else we can hold on to as we faith with death. What else can we hold on to? Whether we're dying by old age, by cancer, or by the sword, what do we have to hold on to? Hold on to Christ. Christ is our sure and steady anchor that takes us through the door of death and takes us home. So whether it's by a sword or suffering, hold on to Christ. And Jesus will say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you. Amazing. If you're being persecuted today, realize that Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Maybe it's not quite like they were being persecuted with the sword or with death by the Romans. Maybe it's by people at school or your coworkers or whatever the case is, making fun of you, excluding you, um, trying to get you to look at something you shouldn't look at, laughing at it, trying to get you to compromise. Jesus sees and Jesus cares. He is for you and he is pleased with you when you are not ashamed of him. May we stand strong like Antipas and have, you know, have Jesus say, my faithful witness. As we move into 14, though, however, we kind of change gears here, ever, like we have at the parent-teacher conference. We just got the affirmation. Now we're getting the, uh, eh, there's a little bit of stuff to work on here. We see there's some correction needed. Jesus' love and correction. So what was the problem here? Well, even though they were standing strong to the blatant persecution, they were beginning as a church to tolerate the sinful influences in their church. They were being tempted to fall in love with the world. And this is kind of like Jesus saying, my beloved people, church, beware, watch out. Don't be fooled by Satan's more subtle, crafty schemes. Look at Revelation 2, 14 through 15. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Balaam and the Nicolaitans might be a little bit unfamiliar to us, but I'll try to work it out and make it a little more clear. Jesus alerts them here that there was a dangerous teaching. There was a dangerous teaching that was placed within their church right under their noses. They may not have even recognized it. The teaching was the teaching of Balaam. This was an Old Testament prophet. You may remember Balaam and the donkey. The donkey was more honorable than Balaam. <laughs> and then, you know, the donkey actually speaks to Balaam. You know, it's like, what? So that's in Numbers 22. You can look it up, kids, if you want to read an interesting and exciting story. Numbers 22. Pretty cool donkey. Um, and there was also the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it seems like these Nicolaitans, we don't have them today, but it seems like these guys, what they were doing 
was what the Old Testament prophet Balaam did. It was kind of a same false, dangerous teaching repackaged that was contemporary to the people in Revelation. So what did Balaam do? Well, I encourage you to read the whole story in Numbers 22 through 25 sometime and in chapter 31. But to summarize, Balaam, this guy, Balaam, the son of Beor, was a prophet in the Old Testament, not a good prophet, um, not a good guy. Well, after God had rescued Israel from Egypt and was leading them through the wilderness, he, he saved them from Egypt, was leading them through the wilderness, leading them to the promised land, the Moabites wanted to attack and defeat them. They didn't like them being in their area. So the king of Moab, Balak, hired or tried to hire this prophet guy, Balaam. He wanted to hire him to curse Israel. Well, long story short, uh, every time he tried to curse Israel, God made him bless Israel. So <laughs> it happened like three times. And it made Balak really irritated. It's like, I keep trying to pay you to like curse them and you keep blessing them. Well, since he could not curse Israel, he could not get God to curse him, them, Balaam advised the king of Moab, like, okay, okay, don't try to attack them with swords and stuff like that. Instead, this is what you can do to ruin them. Seduce them with your daughters. Get them to fall in love with your ladies. Welcome them to the parties. Be their friends. The strategy was kind of like a Trojan horse. If you can't beat him, join him and get inside and corrupt them from the inside. It was like, hey, stop trying to kill them. Instead, be their friends. Welcome them to the party at your house. Offer them a beer. Introduce them to your daughter. The strategy proved to be very effective. This strategy was not good for Israel. Before they knew it, the men of Israel fell in love with the Moabite women and began to eat food sacrificed to idols and basically married their false gods. The people of Israel were unfaithful to the Lord, and because of that, the Lord's anger broke out against them. Listen to this. This is from Numbers 25, 1 through 3. This is how successful Balaam's advice was. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Then chapter 31, verse 16, Behold, these, these people, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So because of this unfaithfulness of the people, a plague broke out in Israel. And it's said that 24,000 of them died by the plague because they were unfaithful to the Lord. And it's worth noting if you read the story, that you'll know that the way that the plague stopped was when somebody got serious about this sin and disciplined those who were being unfaithful to the Lord. It's 
pretty graphic. But it was only this zeal for the holiness of the Lord when the people of the Lord got zealous for God and said, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore in our congregation. Now back to Pergamum, like the Old Testament Israelites, the church was being infiltrated, infiltrated by this satanic strategy, but with a new name. And it's interesting to note that, the, that Balaam and the Nicolaitans, both of their names mean the same thing. It means to conquer the people or to be victorious over the people. So the Nicolaitans' teaching was probably something like Balaam's advice. It's okay to participate in the temple festivals or the pagan sporting events. Just don't pray to their gods. You know, maybe exercise, do the things they're doing. Just pray to God instead of to Baal or to Zeus or to whatever. It's okay to be friends with them. You know, be a patriotic citizen. Do your civic duty. Do what they're doing. And maybe if you're popular, they'll listen to you and believe in Jesus. Or maybe it was something like, don't be so legalistic. Come on. You can go to the party, have a couple drinks, date their daughters. It's okay to eat a little bit of food sacrificed to idols. We know that idols are just dead objects. We have freedom in Christ. Don't worry. The Nicolaitans may have had good intentions, but they were tempting Christ's people to spiritual and moral compromise. And in the Gospels, Jesus gives some of the strongest warnings to people who would tempt his people to sin. Listen to this. This should cause us all to be a little more sober. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He continues, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. A little later in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. To summarize Jesus' warnings here to us, make sure you're not tempting others to sin. Be careful. Be careful. Watch yourself. Guard yourself. Also, fight against temptations that would lead you away from Christ. And three, be ready, church, to lovingly correct other believers who are stumbling into sin. Jesus is passionate about his people fighting sin because his people's eternal bodies and souls are at risk. Heaven and hell are in the balance. As we continue on in, in Revelation, this is heavy stuff. We see the solution that Jesus offers to the per- church in Pergamum. He says this, he says this, Verse 16, look at it. Therefore, repent. Repent. That's the solution. Simple. (laughs) 
Repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus calls to repent. Repentance is this change of mind. It's realizing as we may analyze our heart, our actions, that what we've done is wrong. And we begin to turn away. We say, oh God, I'm so sorry. I realize I've been disobeying you or doing something, tempting somebody or whatever. So I'm going to turn away from that. I'm going to go a different direction. It's a change in the opposite direction. So for Pergamum, Jesus is saying, hey, church, stop flirting with the world. Stop eating food sacrificed to idols. Stop participating in the sinful sexual acts. And for those who are not participating in those sexual actions that are in the church, he's saying, hey, church, stop tolerating compromise. Stop tolerating it. There's people teaching in your church that are going to destroy you. Correct them. Correct them. Don't allow this temptation to descend to just linger in the body. He calls the church to action. He says, repent, but if they don't repent, Jesus, this is interesting, if the church doesn't take the call of Christ seriously and say, discipline those within yourselves, kind of like they did in Numbers where they got serious, he says, I will come. I will come and look at the word. I will wage war. Jesus, he's got the sword. I will wage war against who? Against those, them, who are holding this teaching, who are tempting you. So Jesus takes it seriously himself to protect his bride. He will protect his people if, if his church doesn't protect them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus loves his church. He is fully aware of Satan's schemes and his desire to devour us. Jesus gives, gives this warning to lovingly make us aware, to lovingly, don't forget that, to lovingly make us aware of Satan's Trojan horse-like strategy. He wants us to remember that Satan is going to come in here and tempt us to fall in love with the world, to tempt us to commit adultery on our God with the world. John Piper says this, one of the most sobering facts is that all humans have a supernatural enemy whose aim is to use pain and pleasure to make us blind, stupid, and miserable forever. The Bible calls him the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Today, Satan, brothers and sisters, Satan is on the hunt. We must be on guard. We can't fall asleep. As you read the parts where Jesus is talking about the last days and eschatology and end times, he says, be alert. Be ready. Don't fall asleep. The serpent with his cunning deception is trying to lead us astray from pure devotion and sincere devotion to Christ. That's what he's doing in churches all across the world in different strategies, in different ways. One might be the sword. One might be, hey, come to the party. We may not be in danger of death here, but we are in great danger of falling in love with the world. In America, it is so easy to compromise, and we can justify it. We can fall in love with stuff, our houses, our lands, our stuff, 
We can live for comfort and pleasure and safety. We can fall in love with popularity or, or status at school or work, and we can begin to compromise to fit in. We can fall in love with politics and believe that the right president will save our country. We can fall in love with sexual content, sexual morality, and maybe nobody else will even know it. It's just on our phone or it's, on our, it's in the book we're reading or it's on Netflix. And we can just say, come on in, come into our house. We can fall in love with non-believers, dating, or being best friends. What we do and what we love will change us. It will change us. If we love something and spend a ton of time with it, it will change us. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with the wise becomes wise. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Bad company ruins good morals. <laughs> Those aren't very popular sayings, but they're in the Bible. It's, it's a reality that we are influenced by the things and the people we spend time with. What do we watch? Who are we with? Let us recognize the schemes of the devil to tempt us to love the world. And let us join Jesus to fight against it. As Jesus ends his letter, he ends it with a promise of reward for those who conquer. Verse 17. Jesus, the way he says it is like, listen. It's kind of an imperative. It's a, it's, a, it's a command, but it's a different kind of command. To he who has an ear, an ear, let him hear. It's almost like in the Gospels, be alert, beware, listen. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, we have this battle imagery. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus, the one with the sword, calls his people to take up arms. Just take up arms. Begin to do battle with me, church, he says. Battle against the devil. Battle against the schemes of the evil one. And it's promised to those who do conquer. Two eternal rewards. First one is hidden manna. Second one is a white stone with a new name on it. Now, although these two things are a little bit mysterious, I think they probably would have understood it in the first century. But we do know that these are eternal blessings and great rewards. There will be rewards for God's people who are faithful. The Bible teaches that. Look forward to these rewards and these blessings. You know, we think, what do these mean? Jesus called himself the true bread that comes from heaven. Jesus is in heaven with a resurrected body. So in some sense, Jesus is hidden in heaven right now. He is the bread of life in heaven, hidden. We are waiting for him. Also, we know the Bible tells us that one day there will be a feast, a marriage supper of the lamb, and Jesus is actually waiting to partake of the fruit of the vine until we get there and we all enjoy that feast together. So what is the hidden manna? Maybe it's saying, hey, look forward to that. They're going to invite you to the banquets and to the parties and eat the food of the idols and all that. That banquet is so much better. That banquet satisfies you forever and you don't feel bad the next day. 
hold on to that hidden manna. Or maybe it's a white stone. What is the white stone? It was used in a variety of ways. Um, one way was the, a white and a black stone were used in court cases. Uh, a, a black stone meant guilty. White stone meant innocent. A white stone, innocent. You may be found guilty to the emperor, to whatever, for not participating, but Jesus says, I cast my vote for you. You are innocent. They were also known as being invitations to banquets. If, a, if someone was in a sporting event and they won, they were the victor, they would be given a white stone. And that white stone would allow them to come into the banquet and to celebrate. Like, don't worry about their white stones and their banquets and their stuff. I'm inviting you to the best banquet. For all eternity, you will celebrate in the new heavens and new earth. What a blessing. Jesus promises to give these eternal rewards to those who endure persecution unto death and battle against falling in love with the world. So let us not live for leftover junk food of the world, the leftovers of the world. Don't live for the junk food of the world, church. Don't live and don't die for what doesn't matter. May we live for Christ, the heavenly King. And let us look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will enjoy one day in a new heaven and a perfected earth with a body that lives forever that's perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. It is encouraging and also challenging. We pray that you would help us to see, to be encouraged, but also to be motivated. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and you are the victor. As we fall short, as we fail in many ways, we are not worthy. You are worthy, Lord Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You died for us. We thank you. You have adopted us into your family. You have given us a new name. You have, through justification, declared us righteous. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for declaring us righteous, that we, even as we wrestle with sin, that you see us, your children, and you do say, well done, because we are in Christ. We are in your Son, whom you are very well pleased. Help that to motivate us to join you in battling against the devil, against the world, and the flesh. Help us now as we participate in remembering Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Give us more faith and love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As the um, elders and those who are going to serve the uh, Lord's Supper to come forward. Once a month we uh, have the Lord's Supper. In a way we remember what Christ has done for us. We invite you, if you are a believer, if you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to eat and to drink in, in this celebration that points us to the ultimate celebration. One day we will eat in heaven. Luke chapter 22, 14 through 20 the writer writes this, And when the hour came, he, Jesus, 
reclined at table, and the apostles were with him. And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is waiting. He's waiting to eat this with us one day in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to his disciples, Take this, divide it among, among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray for the bread. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving your body for us. You are the victor. You are victorious. You were victorious in your life on earth. You perfectly lived, obeyed the law, battled against temptation unto death. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that for us, that we may live in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Father, we thank you also for the blood of Christ. Blood of Christ that purifies us from all sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for allowing your blood to be poured out for us. We praise you for your atoning sacrifice, your substitutionary life and death, and we praise you for your resurrection. Thank you that you paid for our sin and you joyfully impute to us your righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name.
drink this in remembrance of him. Remember that Christ's blood was shed for you. Believe he will preserve your body and your soul unto everlasting life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's stand for the benediction. I would encourage you to remember that we do have Sunday school today right after the service. There will be a new members class. If you are visiting or have been here for a while and haven't participated in that, I encourage you to consider that. Uh, that would be, I believe, downstairs. Lord benediction, Lord's benediction comes from Philippians 4.7. May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Go now in grace and peace.